are at present at the end of our Summer psalm series. By the way, if, if for some reason you can't hear me uh, as the sermon goes on, just give me a thumbs up. That'll tell me to take the volume up, okay? And you can smile too, that helps. <laughs> We're at the end of this Summer psalm series, and as some of you probably know, the psalms are sometimes called a prayer book of the Bible. Uh, they're transcripts of earnest and majestic prayers that God's people have prayed in times past. Now, these prayers are quite honest, sometimes more honest than our own prayers. You start reading through the Psalms and you'll see that there's no pretense or facade. But you'll also see, as we see today in Psalm 27, that the Psalms display an assertive hope and a robust confidence in God. Levels of those things which can leave us, leave us admiring but also perplexed. It's not always our experience. But here's the thing, the Psalms... They aren't just a record of ancient prayers that we should peruse and admire. They don't belong in a theological museum. They belong in your house and on your lips. you got to give God some sugar, as they say back in South Carolina. <laughs> the Psalms are a guide for our praying, the type of praying that should be part of normal Christian life. In this sense, they're very practical to us. They give us permission to pray in ways that might otherwise feel irreverent. The Psalms remind us that God can handle our raw emotions. He's not like some of us. Sometimes we get scared and frightened by intense emotion, whether it's in ourselves or whether it's being spewed onto us. God's not like that. He can handle it. The Psalms summon us to express gratitude to God. That's a spiritual habit which can all too easily atrophy, at least in my own life. The Psalms, you might say, are templates for prayer, prayer for different moments and events of regular human life, moments of stability, moments of destitution and agony, but also moments of restoration and deliverance. Now, before digging into some of the big themes of Psalm 27, I want to pause for an exercise, a we practicum, as the Scots would say. Lately, I've been talking to some of you in the church, some of you here today, in fact, about your prayer life and the Psalms and how to use the Psalms in your prayers. And I want to share something with you right now, briefly, that a seasoned pastor once shared with me. As you know, when we dip into the Psalms, we often find specific historical details and personal situations that are kind of alien to us, quite different from our experience. In using the Psalms for your prayers, it was swap out insert the details of your life into that psalm, your frustrations and sorrows, your celebrations and thanksgivings. Swap it out. Now, for some of you, that may feel a bit odd initially. You might think, am I changing the Bible? Am I redacting God's Word? No, you're not. Nobody's going to be reprinting the ESV because of your prayers here. Okay? Now, listen to me. The psalms are not given... They're given, they're, they're given to draw our lives into deeper prayer. Not just so we can know about David's prayers and David's struggles. Right? But what David is doing is a precedent for us. It's a precedent for us to follow in our own prayer life. Enough explanation. I'm going to give you an example of what this can look like using Psalm 27 as a loose template. Okay? I, I put this together uh, with my housemate Richard. It's for Richard. It's about his life loosely. Right? <laughs> The Lord is my light and my salvation. To the choir master, according to Ice Ice Baby, the Psalms often have a melody they reference. I'm not going to do it to music today. 
So, but here's what it might look like. Richard's a PhD student at UBC, by the way, just to put him in context. The Lord is my light and my life. What shall I fear? God is my stronghold. My purpose and destiny are in his hands. Ultimately, God's the one who's going to give me a job, not my degree. When my doctoral studies leave me fatigued and weary and feeling inept, God will remind me that I am more than what I can do. He will break apart this lie. It will stumble and fall. When the Graduate Studies Committee critiques my work and leaves me feeling discouraged, my heart shall not fear. Though I make an error in my research, I will remain confident. God has me where he wants me. Father, spare me from troubles. Lift me above departmental politics and vendettas. Grant me favor with those who evaluate my work. Give me advocates and supporters in this demanding journey. Spare me from envy and from being an object of envy. If people speak falsely about my work and make unfair accusations, make their words come to nothing. Lord, I seek you with my heart. Do not cast me off when my own shortcomings and folly cause me to do things I regret. In moments when I feel forgotten or unseen by my supervisors or colleagues or friends, I know that you are always there. Your promises and your presence are greater than my feelings. You will always take me in. I wait for you. That's how a psalm can practically assist us. But the psalms do more than that. And Psalm 27 has something more to offer us today. We live in an uncertain world. It's the world of chances and changes, as the old Book of Common Prayer says. And if we're to weather all of that, if we're to find joy in the midst of this life, we need a robust spirituality. We need more than just a template for praying. We need a proper orientation. We need an attitude and an outlook that will generate steadiness and hope. Now, Psalm 27 not only displays that type of attitude, but it also shows us how to enter into it. And it tells us a few secrets about being close to God, who is the center of the spirituality that will sustain us in confidence and hope. So let's plunge into the text now. I want you to keep it in front of you, please. As we wade through it, we're going to consider just two things. We're going to consider a discipline, and we're going to consider an invitation. A discipline and an invitation. Look with me at that first stanza, verses 1 through 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me, my adversaries and foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, I will remain confident. And also at verse 5, in the day of trouble, the Lord will hide me. He will conceal me under his tent. He will lift me high on a rock. These words are spoken from a place of true confidence, real confidence, true hope. I want to be in that place. The more the better. Why? Because when I am not in that place, I tend to do things that I regret. I tend to do things that can hurt other people, things that can be self-destructive. When I lack confidence and hope in God, I tend to start playing God. I tend to, tend to start trying to be in charge of my own life. And when I do that, it leads me into manipulation or aggression and competitiveness. It leads me into anxiety. 
It leads me to operate out of fear and insecurity. It leads me to assume the worst rather than the best about people. It leads me to grasping rather than to generosity. Now at odds with all of that filth, David's words here are convinced that his present and ultimate well-being are with God more than anything else. Whatever troubles he encounters, God is greater, God is bigger. God is not David's PA. God's not there to help with the little things while David takes care of the big stuff. No, no, no. That's not what's going on here. Now, what's the source of this confidence and hope that David shows us in this song? At least several things. In the first place, it's God's track record. Let's break that down. In our human-to-human relationships, when do we speak like David is speaking right here in these first verses? When do we speak like that? When we trust people and so we're able to depend on them. That's when we speak like David is speaking. If Alistair tells the board at St. Peter's that Roger is going to get something done, it's because he's familiar with my track record of getting things done, hopefully. He has confidence in me because I've pulled through in the past. In like manner, God's past faithfulness is the basis for David's confidence and hope here. Confidence and hope in the future. These words have a future orientation. What does that mean? Listen carefully. Recognition and gratitude for God's past faithfulness is a precondition, a precondition for the type of confidence and hope that David has and that we all need. You need to embrace this. But you also need to appreciate and recognize that gratitude and recognition for God's faithfulness ain't always going to come easy. It's not the path of least resistance, as it were. In fact, it can be quite difficult for us. Not too long ago, I saw a remarkable film called Awakenings. It was made in 1990. Some of you probably think that's very old. It's a great film. Robin Williams is the star, and it's an unusual role for him because it's a drama. He plays a doctor called Malcolm Sayer, whose research centers on patients in a long-term catatonic state. Right? Catatonic state means like a sort of a never-ending coma or a trance-like existence. Now, there's a particular patient that's at the center of this story. His name is Leonard Lowe, and he fell into catatonia as a teenager. It was devastating. By the time the movie starts, Leonard has been in that state for several decades like losing someone, except not really. Now, as Leonard's story unfolds, there's a scene that is particularly gripping and telling. It stuck with me. Cindy's heard me talk about this many times. His mother, Mrs. Lowe, is having a conversation with Dr. Sayer, and she's reflecting on Leonard's birth and his early childhood and then his sliding into sickness. This is what she says. When my son was born healthy, I never asked why. I was so lucky. What did I do to deserve this perfect child, this perfect life? I never asked why. But when he got sick, you can bet I asked why. I demanded to know why. Why was this happening? That scene is stuck with me. Why? Because it tells us something I think that is true about ourselves, all of us. 
what Al Gore would call an inconvenient truth. Our default posture is one of entitlement. And so we find it easier and even more natural to complain than to give thanks. We find it easier to complain. That's why the victim mentality is so, so common in our culture. We're so much better at protesting our perceived injustices than we are at acknowledging when things go well. That's why I'm much more likely to groan and fume when I hit every stoplight on Granville Street than I am to give thanks when they all stay green. And they do sometimes. I've been trying to keep a tab now, see if it's equal. <laughs> if you want to enter into the reality of Psalm 27, this problem has to change. And so we need to pursue a discipline. The discipline of gratitude. Now, discipline is a part of normal Christian life. That's exactly what 2 Timothy chapter 1 says. Listen to this. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of discipline. Now, hear me out. The place of discipline, the need for discipline in Christian life, reflects the fact that God wants us to grow up as humans. He wants us to get out of the nursery, to develop and mature to operate with a proper sense of reality. And your reality and my reality, according to the Bible, is filled with God's gifts to us. Gifts through other people, gifts through our society, but also gifts that come in a more indirect and sometimes unexplainable way. Reflect with me on this. For all of us, for all of us, there are innumerable number of blessings and gifts in our life that have no immediate material cause. So there's no person or institution we can go and thank for them directly. How do we interpret those gifts and blessings? Maybe we attribute it to karma. That's a subtle way of thanking ourselves. Maybe we attribute it to coincidence. That's a way of thanking no one. The Bible says we should thank God. We should thank God. Now, as this applies to gratitude, what we need to see is that gratitude is not just an emotion. It's also a habit. It's something we have to cultivate. But as I've already said, it's something that can be difficult for us. We should expect a little bit of inertia for at least two reasons, I think. Firstly, we should expect some resistance in gratitude because we are prone to comparison. When we attempt to assess our condition, our worth, our value as people, we have a propensity to look outwards and then upwards. If you look outwards and then upwards, it means you assess yourself based on how you stand in relation to someone else or other people. And the common result of that is dissatisfaction. So then you look up and complain to God. Why didn't I get a kiss? If you're that kind of person, you look at a rose bush and you see the thorns, not the roses. That's a bad habit. It's a habit that needs to be broken. We need to learn to look upwards and then outwards. That means we need to appraise our condition and worth and standing in this life, first and foremost, based on God's love and care and provision for us. Once we do that and then we look outwards, we're much less susceptible to envy. And gratitude is much more likely to flow out of us 
When you're that kind of person, you look at a rose bush and you see all the beautiful roses. There's a second reason, however, that we find gratitude difficult. We inhabit a society that is filled with words and voices and images which are highly proficient in peddling malcontent. If capitalism or whatever this economic arrangement we live in, if it's specialized in meeting our needs in affordable ways, it's also specialized in generating needs, in fueling dissatisfaction. There's a Calvin and Hobbes comic that really hits this nail on the head. In the comic, Hobbes points out to Calvin that his emotional well-being depends on a need that wasn't there until he happened to read an advertisement for a certain product. Our culture is inundated with forces that want to strangle any form of contentment that does not advance incessant consumerism. And one of the great byproducts of that economic arrangement and this context in which we live is our formation, or more accurately, our mal-formation. We have all been unwittingly conditioned to focus much more easily on what we don't have than on what we do have. And that's why we can expect some inertia when it comes to gratitude. It's like we're programmed against them. It's like pushing a rock up a mountain. <laughs> Tried to do that on Friday. It didn't move at all. Now, I know all this isn't exactly encouraging to you, but we're about truth here in the church. Complaining just seems to come easier than appreciation and gratitude. It comes more frequently. I know there are at least three of you in the room who can relate to this, and I'm two of them. Okay. For me, it seems that there have been times when it, gratitude and complaining exist at about a 10 to 1 ratio. Ten complaints for one point of gratitude. About seven years ago, I noticed it had gotten quite bad, or should I say God convicted me that it had gotten quite bad. And I was looking through my journals at that time, and it became quite obvious. I was a professional complainer. I should have become a consultant. <laughs> my awareness of God's goodness was pretty paltry. So I took on a discipline. I compelled myself to write five points of gratitude each day and only one point of complaint or one, one thing of perceived lack. And I did that for 18 months, bending my attitude in line with reality, learning to say thank you to God. And that's one of the best prayers that we can pray. And it's a prayer that teaches us a secret, that gratitude doesn't flow from happiness as much as happiness and satisfaction flow from gratitude. Don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying in all this that, that there's no place or time to lay your sorrows and your disappointments before God our Father. I talked about that a few weeks ago in Psalm 59, and I wasn't lying to you. Okay? But we mustn't do only that. We need to learn to give thanks. We need to make that a discipline. And it's a good discipline because it corresponds to reality. Look with me at verse 13 in Psalm 27. I love the message translation from Eugene Peterson. I am sure I'll see God's goodness in the exuberant earth. Yes, we will, and yes, we do. Now, if you're struggling to feel this reality, 
All you have to do is ask another person to help you. That's my experience. So often while we're harping on what we lack, while we're complaining, other people looking into our lives can see very clearly all the gifts and presents. We need their eyes. When I was in graduate school, I remember being riddled with a state of insufficiency. I was chronically dissatisfied for about two years, tended to really hyper-focused on what I lacked in comparison to others. Not as smart, not as good a writer, not as well-read, not as fast a thinker. The list goes on and on and on. I was filled with a sense of lack. And then I had a conversation with a friend one afternoon on the telephone. And when he looked into my life, he felt the gratitude that I should have felt. He marveled at the opportunity I had to be in graduate school, the time to read and study, even access to the loans to pay for it. He marveled. He opened my eyes, and they needed to be opened. I think God gives us each other to keep our eyes open to his goodness in our lives. Can we do that for each other? Can we be that kind of community and church here at St. Peter's? That's normal Christian life. Remember what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. I love the short sentence in verse 15. And be thankful. And be thankful. This is one way we can help each other to put the words of Psalm 27 verse 1 in our mouths. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Let's journey a bit further in the psalm now. On to that second thing. Look with me at verse 8 and 9a. Beautiful words here. You have said, seek my face. Your face, O Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. There's an invitation in this verse. What's the memo here? I'll tell you. The type of gratitude that fuels a life of steady confidence and hope is not only nurtured through the spiritual discipline of gratitude. It's not that simple. We can't just rely on our sight and memory on seeing and celebrating God's faithfulness in the past. We need more than that. I need more than that. We need the presence of God. We need to experience the reality of God with us. We need to dwell in the sanctuary of God. David knows this. I want you to look at verse 4. The one thing that I would seek after is to dwell in the house of the Lord and to gaze upon his beauty. Pay attention, I need to make an important distinction here. The need for discipline, like the discipline of gratitude in Christian life, that corresponds to God's desire for us to grow up and mature as people. But the invitation to seek God's face, that corresponds to our need to always see ourselves as God's children. Always see ourselves as God's children. The type of confidence and hope right here in Psalm 27 is never the result of gaining independence from God. That's not what growing up spiritually means. Let me give you an analogy. If there's a screaming and crying baby and they're, they're, they're fearful, waiting, waiting and wanting the parent, right? It's not enough for the nanny to tell the baby that the parent's in the next room. It's not enough to tell them that. Something more concrete is required. The child needs to see the parent's face. That's what brings consolation. That's what stabilizes. And the same is true for us. Our lives will always have moments like that. So the confidence and hope that David writes about here in Psalm 27, it can never be reduced down just to a spiritual discipline. Being lifted on a high rock 
amidst all the struggles and storms of this life is not something that we can do all by ourselves. It's something that the Lord makes. It's a gift. And that's why there's an invitation. Seek my face. Seek my face. What's that mean, seek my face? The Hebrew there is just a term for close-up, personal presence. In other words, steadfastness in God is the result of intimacy with God. That's what God is offering us in verse 8. And that, my friends, is precisely what God extends to us through Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, Christ is called Emmanuel, God with us. What does that mean? It means that God himself came into human history. The same God speaking here in Psalm 27, he came in, he came to the earth, and he put on the face of Jesus of Nazareth. Why did God do that? Why did he enter into your mess and my mess? Why did he want to bother himself with all of our baggage? Because he meant what he says right here in verse 8, seek my face. It's not a sentiment, it's a summons. And it's given to us in love. All we need to do is look at his face. To dwell at it. To gaze at it. That's what brings security. Let me give you an illustration for this. In the Lord of the Rings. One of my favorite books and movies. The little hobbits find themselves in these intense battles sometimes. Gandalf brings them along on this adventure. Now of course they know they're going to need to fight sometimes. right? So they get some weapons. They work on their swordsman skills, right? That's going to serve them well. But more than any of their combat abilities, they know that having Gandalf on their side is the best asset. And so when things get rough, their little weapons bring them some comfort and relief. But it's seeing the face of Gandalf, the protector, that really gives them confidence and hope. They remember the showdown with the Belrog when he said, You shall not pass! It's a great scene. Gandalf doesn't faff around. That face brings comfort. So too with us. As we see the face of God. The face of God in Jesus Christ. And it is a face which we can still seek and see personally. We can do that even though Jesus is not bodily present with us right now. It doesn't mean he's hidden his face. Listen to his own words in John chapter 14. Sweet Jesus spoke these words as he was preparing for his bodily departure or his ascension. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In a little while the world will not see me, but you will see me. And you will know that I am in my Father, in you and me, and I in you. Now these words articulate one of the most outrageous claims of the New Testament and of church history, they claim that God is with us, that God is with us, that we can have intimate, personal connection with him. We don't just know Christ and God in a historical sense from the testimony of the Bible. We know him real time. We know him as a friend who is closer than a brother. That's why the language of connection with Jesus Christ in the New Testament after the ascension is not past tense. It's present tense. Jesus is not just a memory. We can dwell with him. We can inquire with him. And in all of this, we can have confidence and hope that will baffle an anxious and uncertain world. 
you can experience that now and today in this life, in this city. This is my testimony. This is the testimony of many others in the church here now. It is the testimony of other Christians and other churches in this city. And it is the testimony of Christians from every culture and race and people on this earth for 2,000 years. The existence of the church for that period of time gives proof that God's face has been and can be seen. That we can gaze at his face, that we can encounter Jesus Christ as a reality and not just an idea. And when we do that, we can know that everything is going to be okay. That everything is going to be okay. That's the promise that comes from that face. Our future no matter what the present is, is bright and shining. This is how the story ultimately ends for those who rely on God. And that is why we can withstand panic and fear when in the middle of our own stories, when things seem awry and we feel imperiled and embattled, when we suffer, we can find poise and confidence and hope because that's not the last word. John Stott, the great Anglican pastor, put it so well. Our freedom from fear is not due to freedom from trouble. It is due to the confidence that God is our Father and that even our struggles are within his orbit of care. That's the secret to getting into a place of real confidence and true hope. The Lord would be your light and your salvation. Let him.